Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from alpha to, omega. to Omega. Hello and welcome to the 88th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Monday the 13th of August 2018 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week we welcome back Professor Andrew Kleiman to the show to talk all about the idea that Trump was a reaction to neoliberal economic policies and what exactly does the empirical evidence show. We also get into the nitty gritty on US inequality statistics and discuss what effect Trump's politics and the resistance will have on US society. But before we jump into all this good stuff, I have to thank the new Patreon subscriber, Grant J, and of course, all the existing PayPal and Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to help keep the show flowing full steam ahead, why not become a Patreon subscriber? As a bonus, they get the latest episodes a day or two early before everybody else. Also, if you'd like to comment, please do so on the YouTube video. And please, please, please give the show a thumbs up and subscribe while you're at it. We've also recently just started the TSSI Reading Group series, where we read in detail Professor Kleiman's Reclaiming Marxist Capital. The first episode is currently available on the YouTube channel, and I will be shortly uploading it to Podomatic in the next day or two. Check it out. We should be doing part two next Saturday. So if you subscribe to YouTube, you'll be notified when we are going live. The current plan is to do it every Saturday at noon Eastern Standard Time. Last week we were a little late starting due to technical difficulties, but they've been fully sorted now. Okay, so that's enough housekeeping. To the interview. Andrew, you're working on a, on a, on a new book. Can, do you want to tell us what this book is about? So thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, The book is an exploration of the relationship between Trumpism and what I call, for want of a better term, uh, the anti-neoliberal left. Uh, Nobody on the left is actually in favor of neoliberalism, but by anti-neoliberal left, the people who are not against capitalism uh, as such, who emphasize uh, that they are battling neoliberalism, and that perspective runs up against Trumpism and other expressions of the far right. The anti-neoliberal mindset did not prepare us for the horrors of the rise, you know, the new ascendancy of the far right. And there are a lot of tendencies within the neoliberal left that kind of downplayed, for instance, uh, the horrors of Trumpism versus uh, Clinton. And a large part of that story uh, has to do with the myth of neoliberalism basically decimating working people, causing their incomes to stagnate, to fall, uh, whatever it might be. So uh, the book goes into the politics of this, and it goes into the economics of it. I've been doing uh, a lot of the economic research, which I think we're going to be talking about for a long time. And that was in connection with trying to understand the Great Recession. There are issues concerning the fall in the rate of profit, which I think was important uh, in a long-term view. 
In terms of conditions kind of setting the stage for the Great Recession, not an immediate cause, but the anti-neoliberal narrative of the neoliberals coming in and smashing the working class runs up against that. It's really kind of hard to reconcile the idea that the rate of profit fell if so much income is being, you know, shifted away from the working class, you know, to the owners and, and, and to the 1% and so forth. So uh, I, I spent a long time investigating that issue, and I found that basically that falling share of uh, labor, falling share of the working class, uh, basically it, it was a myth up until the Great Recession. So the book will have some discussion of how how the anti-neoliberal left mindset did not prepare us for the rise of the far right, its difficulty in grappling with the far right, instances of collaboration with, with the far right, instances of poo-pooing the differences between, you know, just uh, liberals, uh, regular conservatives, and, and the far right. Uh, it'll have this uh, discussion of you know, income inequality and, and so forth. It will contain discussions of, well, what I call combating white nationalism in the tradition of Marx, because uh, Karl Marx faced the, the problem that uh, there were groups of workers who were taken by the nationalism uh, of their group. Uh, that would be English workers who were siding with the English ruling classes, the, the, the capitalists and the landlords, uh, against the Irish in their fight for independence. That was, uh, he was very involved in that in the late 60s, 1860s, early 1870s. And a few years before then, there was this whole problem of what he called the poor whites in the U.S., a lot of whom were siding with the slave owners uh, against the, uh, the the blacks who wanted to be free from slavery. So what Marx did was to he basically concluded that due to their identification with the, the ruling classes of their countries, they were not able to realize their liberatory revolutionary potential and that the defeat of the slave owners uh, in the U.S. Civil War and the defeat of England in its struggle to maintain rule over Ireland that was the threshold question. It was it was necessary to you know defeat England to defeat the Confederacy in the U.S. in order for the what, white workers in the U.S. and English workers in, in England to get on the path of independent emancipatory politics. So there will be discussion of that in the book, and there will be also some other political discussion of really what is Trump's base. You know why did he attract relatively speaking, a large number of white workers. It's, it's, it's easy to exaggerate that, but I'm looking at, at that as well, because that goes along with the, the anti-neoliberal myth in general, that neoliberalism um, smashed the working class, and what they concluded, a lot of these people, without having any data immediately after the election, is, okay, Trump's election was a revolt of the working class against the elites and against neoliberalism and the economic distress caused by neoliberalism. Uh, and there's a tremendous amount of data, studies that have been done trying to isolate the, the various things going on behind the, the shift of votes to Trump. 
And, and none of that is true. None of that narrative that this was a revolt of the working class against economic distress uh, is it, none of it's correct. I, I, I'm, I think it's safe to say that there's actually no evidence for that directly and a great deal of evidence uh, against it. And the, the other thing I want to explore, and this is more tentative, I don't have it as much worked out at this point. The other thing to explore politically is why so much of the left has gone in this direction. Uh, it's what I call the left first orientation, uh, just like Trump has an America first orientation. Um, a lot of the anti-neoliberal left has a left first orientation. So instead of judging things by, you know, is this good for human beings? Is this good for the self-development of humanity, for social progress? They, they, they judge issues in terms of, is it good for the left? Is it good for their party? Is it good for whatever? And so there's this kind of opportunism taking place whereby they look at various parts of the public as constituencies to be won over. And there's a very dangerous thing going on whereby this uh, Trumpite base, you know, uh, maybe a third of the U.S. population uh, the Trumpite base is viewed as a, a constituency for, quote, the left, close quote, to, to win over. I mean, this is the most retrograde uh, section of the U.S. population. And it, it's extremely uh, dangerous to be normalizing fascism, proto-fascism, fascism and so forth by putting yourself in competition with it. I think that, that's very dangerous to be legitimizing it in that way. So I want to talk about that as well. So when you talk about the anti-neoliberal left, left, who is who are you talking about and what's their analysis? Well, it's a very wide group of people and the, 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 the breadth of it is a function of how widespread the anti-neoliberal narrative is. It's penetrated just a whole lot of both the academic left and, and the activist left. OK, so you've got everything from. Basically, Putinites, uh, apologists for Putin, such as uh, Boris Kagalitsky. He calls himself a Marxist. He, he lives in, in, in Moscow. You've got everything from that to the feminist theorist Nancy Fraser, who's basically a follower of uh, Karl Polanyi and who just runs this, this, this kind of anti-neoliberal line uh, wherein the major struggle in, in society is between those who want unfettered markets or what we would now call neoliberalism and those who favor social protection. That line was actually put forward by, by Karl Polanyi in his very famous book, The Great Transformation, written when or right after, actually during the, the reign of uh, Hitler and, and Mussolini. I mean, the problem with that kind of a perspective is if everything is a matter of the market versus social protection, then the, the, the people fighting for socialism are in the same camp as, as fascists. Explain that. Ex explain that. Well, fascists are not in favor of unfettered markets. They're in favor of a strong, what's often known as a corporate state, whereby distinctions between the state and capital the state and society are, are are eroded and you have of course in fascism very strong state influence over the economy um john maynard keynes very famously 
in the German edition of his book, the general theory in the, in the German edition of that book, he said that uh, he believed that it was easier to implement his proposals, his policy proposals in a fascist regime than in a democratic one. What was his reasoning there? Uh, I don't think he gave much reasoning at that point. If he did, I don't remember it. It was, it was very brief. It was like an introduction or a preface to the, the, the German edition, but clearly the lack of checks and balances and the lack of civil society institutions that are independent of state control. I, I think that that is actually what makes it obvious that, that he's, he's right about that. You know, fascist governments can do a lot without a lot of pushback, without having to compromise with, you know, the market, so to speak. So this line of the anti-neoliberals, it, to me, it's always a kind of a way for people who are left-leaning to not say that they are anti-capitalist. Is this kind of what you're getting towards, where you have these people that are kind of essentially old-fashioned social democrats, but in ironically what they're looking for is a strong state, is also similar to what the fascist element is looking at? Is that your analysis? Not not quite. You've actually said a couple of different things. One, it's a way to avoid saying that you're anti-capitalist. So that would be just like an opportunistic marketing ploy. I think there are people who that's descriptive of. I think there are people who are actually committed or resigned to capitalism. So it's not a marketing ploy, but they just want a kinder, gentler capitalism. There are people, I believe, who are along the lines of Nancy Fraser. I, I think that there are a lot of people who are just anti-market, not because of the particular effects, but as a general rule, they prefer state intervention to markets. And I think there are a lot, a lot of people who think that they can get through political action the kinds of things they want better if there's more state intervention in the economy than if there's less. And that's particularly attractive to people who think that they can gain power by appealing to working people on the basis of we can redistribute income in your direction and then you'll support us and so forth and so on, or you'll support us and we will redistribute income, whichever comes first. So there's a lot of a lot of things going on. So it's it's hard it's hard to put it in in one summary form. Uh, I think there are you know a number of different currents uh, all converging uh, around this this anti neoliberal line. Uh, the way I would put it to understand the anti neoliberal line, let's let's put it this way. Um, let's just think of the people who either minimized the differences between, let's say, Hillary Clinton and, and Donald Trump, as if Trumpism is, is nothing new, not a great new threat, or the people who actually thought that uh, Trumpism is better than, you know, Clinton's reign, or the people who, and this was the, the line of Jill Stein of the Green Party, she was the Green Party presidential candidate, the, the people who kind of tried, I, I think it was rather ridiculous, but they tried to blame Trumpism on neoliberalism. In other words, to say that the, 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 the neoliberals were responsible for the rise of Trump. 
as if that actually has anything to do with the issue. I can't really even understand what that has to do with the issue, but I, I, it, it's a way I think of, of, of keeping this, this the anti-neoliberal narrative intact. So if, if you just take those, those reactions, not a great deal of difference between rise of proto-fascism and, and neoliberalism, or you take you know, those who preferred uh, Trump or those who basically blame Trump on neoliberalism. That's, I think what, what I'm getting at, and again, there are myriad motivations in the individual case for this. Well, let's dig into one thing I'd like to dig into first is like the ideas that that has been widespread in the left, that the wages have been stagnant, I think, since 1970 something or 1980. Now, your research that you've done contradicted that claim. Can you tell us more about what has happened recently in that arena? I think with Piketty, who did the very well-received book in Polite Society, uh, his book Capital, has recently changed his figures for inequality and they've come to concur with what you've been arguing for the last number of years. Yeah, I mean, Capital in the 21st century did not do much along the lines of inequality in the U.S. and the 1% income share uh, it had some of that stuff. It was very well received, but it sold a humongous number of copies. The average number of pages gotten through by people who bought it as a Kindle book or something was 26 pages. Very few people actually read it. Okay, it, I, I found it a bit of a challenge, and, and I, you know, I, I know this, this this inequality literature pretty well. It was after that in late 2016. That Piketty, uh, Emmanuel Sayas, who he had been writing with for oh, 15 years or so, and the third person, uh, Gabriel Zuckman. Okay, so it was after the publication of Capital in the 21st Century that they produced a new study, which lined up with what a lot of other people uh, have been saying, which really did address and, in some sense, endorse the criticisms of what they had done earlier. You know, there's still differences out there, okay? So compared to other people, the new, from December 16 on, the new Piketty, Sayas, Zuckman approach still gives us figures for the rise in inequality that are greater than other people. Not as much as before, however, but they accept that there was not stagnation of you know middle incomes people income you could you could you could take the old Piketty and Sias data and say you know there's been a stagnation of of uh, incomes of, of working people of, of people in the middle David K Johnston was doing that a lot he's a well-known journalist but you can't say that with the new Piketty Sias Zuckman data from uh, December 2016 onward and it's because in responding to the criticisms of their approach, Piketty and Sias have adopted a number of changes that other people were suggesting that um, they were criticizing the, the old Piketty Sias approach. And when Piketty and Sias make these changes, they find what, what other people f find. Uh, and the basic things are first, they had used the inconsistent measure for inflation, because you want to get real income growth, not because of inflation. 
So you want to factor out the inflation. They used an inconsistent uh, inflation adjustment procedure, inconsistent index. When you use a consistent one and one that is, is preferable, uh, you get more income growth in the, in the middle. Secondly, because Piketty and Sias focused on tax units, they got different numbers from everybody else. In the United States, a tax unit is whoever files a tax return, a tax report to the tax authorities. And that's not something where you have equal number of people per tax unit because a married couple is one tax unit. A married couple with a 17-year-old kid is one tax unit. A single individual is a tax unit. So you could have a tax unit of one, two, three, or even more people. And we've had a very, very sharp decline in the marriage rate in the United States, particularly on the bottom. So what happens is you get a proliferation of tax units at the bottom increasingly over time, and that spreads out the income of people at the bottom more and more if you look at income per tax unit as Piketty and Sias were doing. When you put the numbers on the basis of households, especially size-adjusted households, you see much more growth in income in the middle uh, and at the bottom than you do when you look at these tax units of unequal size. And the most important thing by far is that Piketty and Sias way back, you know, 2001, 2003, up until December of 2016, they were looking at income reported on tax returns. And there's just tremendous amount of income that is received by people that is not income uh, on tax returns. There are, uh, in the United States, we've got the government pension system, social security, government medical insurance for retirees and disabled people and others, Medicare. There's also Medicaid, which is traditionally a program for poor people. Okay. So some of these are benefits that are partly paid by employers. Employers have to contribute half of the tax contributions for uh, worker social security, the pensions and the Medicare, the, the health plan. Then there are employer provided pension and health benefits, which are not wages and, and they're not reported on, on tax returns and, and similar kinds of non-wage, non-cash income. Okay. So there's a lot of income that is not cash income. And in addition, if you look at the Piketty and Sias numbers, when people were receiving these social security benefits, when they retire, the pension benefits, that wasn't being counted because, uh, or at least a lot of it was not being counted because it was not taxable income. Only over a certain threshold of income does that need to be reported. So these things count tremendously and increasingly because of a tremendous growth over time in the share of employees' compensation that is not cash wages, but that is uh, consists of uh, pension and uh, medical benefits, either provided by the employer or pr provided by the government, uh, the share that the employers are contributing. Okay, So you factor those kinds of things in. That's the major contributor toward the difference between the old Piketty and Sias stuff showing essentially stagnation of incomes in the middle and a fall in incomes at the bottom. And they're, they're new figures, which correspond to pretty much what everybody else has done, who isn't based in their old approach, 
uh, which showed uh, substantial growth in the middle and in, uh, and in the bottom. What has been then the change? So obviously what we're saying is, you know, and it's it's pretty kind of self-evident, is that, you know, not everything that you get paid is in your wage packet. There's lots of other things, benefits that come from all over the place. And the more of those benefits are increasing, the more stuff you're getting, but it won't be reflected in your wage packet. What is overall percentage then of, say, output that the workers were receiving, say, at the start of the neoliberal period versus now? Has there been a big shift in that? Uh, it, depends on, yeah, it depends on exactly how you measure it, what number you come up with for the level. You know, do you look only at corporations or do you look at the whole business sector or, or you know, you can, you can measure that as, as, as different amounts. But the important point is really that from about 1970 up to the Great Recession, you know, that is through 2007. So from 1970 to 2007, there was no substantial change in workers' share, whether you look at workers in the business sector or you look at workers in corporations, the share of the net output that they received was without any trend. And and Piketty and Sias, you know, report that. And actually, they've always reported that. They reported that back in, in, in 2001. It's in their 2003 famous paper where you look at the, the, the one or another labor share, one or another employee share of, of output. They've always acknowledged that in the national account data, uh, the labor share has been uh, basically constant. Would you agree with the following thing, that that is the key statistic when it comes to inequality stuff? Actually, I don't think so, because it's just a very simple technical reason. There's a lot of any lot of inequality among workers. So when you look at the labor share, you're looking at pay of high paid workers, middle paid workers and low paid workers. That doesn't really give you the best measure of inequality because a great deal of the inequality is being eliminated by all these people being mushed together. OK, that's a key point. OK, so let me ask another one then. If the amount of output that is going towards labor has been essentially static up until the Great Recession. How do we understand the substantial rise in the U.S. Gini index? Well, it's interesting how much of a rise in the Gini index uh, you get. Before we talk, I should can we just say what the Gini index is as well, in case anybody doesn't know? Sure. The Gini index is meant to be a single number that expresses the degree of inequality across the whole distribution of income. Most measures are not like that. You get the share of the 1% that Piketty and Sias made famous. That doesn't tell you what's going on with the other 99%. Or you'll get comparisons of the income of the 90th percentile, the people 10% from the top, versus the 10th percentile, people 10% from the bottom. So the 90% to 10% ratio is whatever it might be okay that still doesn't tell you about the whole distribution but the gini coefficient or uh, index or whatever is meant to be a single number that boils down the degree of inequality throughout the distribution it's hard i can give you an, an interpretation of what the number actually is but it's still conceptually hard to understand but the point uh, i think is the number goes from zero, which means no inequality, to one, which means 
one person or household has all of the income. And the higher the number is, the greater the degree of inequality. Okay, so that's how most of us use it. We just look at, has it gone up? Has it gone down? Has it stayed the same? By how much has it gone up and so forth? And actually, again, it depends on how you count income. Just as we were talking about with, you know, have the in, has, has the income of the folks in the middle and the income of the folks at the bottom, has it risen? It depends on what you count as income. So actually, I have here the Gini coefficient computed by the Congressional Budget Office in its latest study. It, it does these studies every every year, every couple of years on uh, income distribution in the U.S. And they are looking at income of size-adjusted households. And so what you get... When they say income, is that like wage, labor income or all of the, like the full income? Okay, they're, 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 they, they, they're counting wages and salaries and non-cash uh, benefits of workers. They're counting interest payments, dividends, social security income received, the implicit Medicare income received. It's, it, it, it's a broad measure uh, of income. So it's, it's very different from the taxable income or the adjusted gross income on uh, tax returns. And what you see, just eyeballing these bar graphs that I've got here, if you look at what's called market income, which corresponds pretty close to what uh, Piketty and Sias prior to December uh, 2016 were looking at, pretty much it's income you know, reported on tax returns. You see a continuing rise in the Gini coefficient from 1979 to 2014, just keeps going up and up. When you add in Social Security benefits, Medicare benefits, and uh, similar benefits, you begin to get less rise in the later periods. When you add in income assistance transfers, this is basically welfare spending, Medicaid, a health program that's traditionally for poor people, uh, the earned income tax credit, whereby low-wage workers can actually get money from the government instead of paying taxes, then you basically get very little rise in the Gini coefficient, no rise at all after the year 2000. And if you look at after-tax income, the, the redistributive effect of the, the tax system, if you factor that in, you get basically no rise in income inequality after 1986. Okay, so that's quite interesting. I remember seeing Gini stats. Now, it's a few years ago, so they might be slightly out, I think like the 70s in America, and the Gini coefficient that I saw at the time in the 70s was something like 0.27, which was one of the lowest in the OECD, and it rose to, I think, 043 or something like that, to be one of the highest in the OECD. But what you're saying is that the statistics went for the full broad measure of income and after tax redistribution income, we're saying is that it's rose early in the neoliberal period and then settled down and it stayed constant since. Yeah, that's what the CBO data indicate. Now, I'm, I'm just kind of eyeballing these, these bar graphs. I get a 13-point rise from 1979 to 2014 in what they call market income. Once you add it in the Social Security and Medicare benefits, 
transfers, you're looking at a nine point rise in the Gini coefficient, right? And again, if you're looking at the, the after tax income, it's also a nine point rise, but only one point is after 1986. So these numbers indicate that from 1986 onward, the, the Gini coefficient has risen by point by, by one point, you know, one point out of a hundred. So, I mean, that's essentially nothing. So are you saying that it's a, a 9% rise in the Gini or 9 in the 100? So is it going like from 30 to 39? It's, it's, nine, it's 9 in the 100. It's not, it's, um, these are not percentages. These are, are uh, points. Points. Okay. So that's still quite a, a high raise, isn't it? A 10-point rise in the Gini. Right. 10 is huge. Okay. And we're getting 9, but we're not getting, according to these numbers, any rise in after-tax income or we're getting a one-point rise in after-tax income from 1986 onward. Okay, so are we saying then that the rise in this neoliberal period came in the Reagan era? Certainly that's the way the data look, according to the CBO. Now, the matter gets more complex than that. Okay, I have to say the following about the, 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 the income distribution and the labor share statistics and all of this. I have a PhD in economics. I have a concentration in labor economics. I wrote my, my dissertation on a topic in labor economics. When I started to research this, uh, I think in 2010, and this was like trying to reconcile the story of rising inequality in the working class being smashed by the numbers I had in front of me that uh, the, the rate of profit had fallen and had not recovered, trying to reconcile these things that are not easy to reconcile, I began to then look at all of these income inequality data and labor share data and so forth. And I had a really imperfect grasp for two years. It took two full years, not that I was working at it, you know, 40 hours a week, but I was reading things pretty consistently. And it, in, until kind of the, the, the map, the field became clear to me as to what I was looking at and how the different things are related uh, it, it was it was it was quite difficult. This stuff is actually very complex, probably the most complex stuff I've ever seen. And due to the criticisms of Piketty and Sias and their responses and so forth, in this intervening what, what is it now eight years, the whole uh, measurement of inequality has gotten so much more complex in terms of what people were doing. You know, so if you look at the Piketty Sias Zuckman stuff, there's a paper, but underlying the paper, you know, are enormous spreadsheet files, you know, three files with 40 tabs each. And this other paper that I'm about to discuss with you by Gerald Outen, A-U-T-E-N, and, and David Splinter, it, 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 it's equal to, to that. It's, you know, big, big, big files, lots and lots of individual sheets, very, very detailed much more than we, we used to get. I mean, what happened is people would, you know, say income. Well, well, we'll use the income figures given to us by the Census Bureau. But then you had Piketty and Sias coming along and saying, oh, there are these data that are coming from the tax authorities. And they were telling a different story. Well, why is that? Right. And Piketty and Sias had one story about why their numbers were telling us something different. And other people are saying, no, it's because of the kinds of income, for instance, that you're excluding. 
uh, non-cash uh, income, non-taxable income. Okay, anyway, late last year, these two economists, Alton and Splinter, both of whom are tax specialists, they're authorities on the U.S. tax system, they basically replicated what Piketty and Sias had done, but said there are a lot of problems with the way that Piketty and Sias deal with the tax data. And the basic problem is, and this was known before, you've got a rubber ruler issue. You are measuring with something that is not consistent throughout time. So in other words, you talk about uh, income on tax returns. That would be okay if it was always the same stuff to the same degree year after year after year that's reported on tax returns. But that's not the case at all. And in particular, in the 1980s, this is the period where we say, okay, it looks like the inequality rose the most. In the 1980s in the United States, in particular, there were major tax changes. And by putting in various adjustments to make the series consistent, Alton and Splinter basically are able to account for almost all of that apparent rise in income inequality from the period 1979, let's say, to 1988. Okay, so what they are saying is that most of that apparent rise is most of it is not act, an actual rise in inequality, but just a, a, a rise that's artificial created by what is being counted as income. Okay, so we're saying that the labor's share of production has not risen, but the genie had risen during the early 80s. And these guys are saying that that is explained by the, the changing of what was measured as taxable income in that period. Mostly, yes. Okay. Not, not, all, not all of it, but, but mostly. And they're actually not sure about most of what they, they don't uh, manage to explain away. But, I mean, some things that, that, that will just, like, explain the intuitions behind this. Prior to 1986, in the U.S., corporate income was taxed at a lower rate than individual income. And individual income is when we say people's income on tax returns, that's individual income, not corporate income. From 1986 onward, the tax on corporate income was higher than on individual income. So the change in the tax law encouraged people to move their income, to shift it from being corporate income to being individual income. So all of a sudden, a lot more income shows up on individual tax returns. And that's not across the board, that's at the very top, you know, the wealthiest people. So all of a sudden, you're getting this massive rise in the in incomes of the, the 1%, let's say, between 1986 and 1988. That, that's an artificial rise. They, they weren't actually better off. It's just more of their income was being reported on individual tax returns rather than corporate tax returns. Alton and, and Splinter actually look at something else. They say way back when, the corporations tended to retain a lot of their profits, you know, which is income, retain a lot of their profits inside the companies instead of distributing them. And then due to tax law changes centered in the 1980s, the corporations began to pay out a greater share of their profits in the form of dividends 
And also since that point, they've been paying higher salaries. The reasons for that are not entirely clear to me. But what that means then is you're going to see a lot more income at the top on individual income tax returns and not in corporate tax returns. So they make that adjustment. Okay. They make a number of other adjustments. They say that Piketty and Saez didn't report everything correctly. You know, they add in the the non-cash sources of income, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, Social Security, so forth. They look at the effect of taxes. So I, I, I did some lining up of three different studies, Piketty and Saez, prior to their 2006 paper. And the new Congressional Budget Office study, and I corrected this to have it income exclusive of capital gains to compare to the other two, and the Outen and Splinter study. So all of these are income exclusive of capital gains. Okay. Basically, between 1988 and, and 2014, both the Congressional Budget Office and Outen and Splinter report that there was no rise in the income share of the top 1% if we look at after-tax income. Whereas Piketty and Sias, their measure of market income shows about a five percentage point rise from 88 to 2014. That's a big rise. In comparison with that, Congressional Budget Office and Outen and Splinter, no rise in the after-tax income share of the top 1%. But where the thing gets really interesting is between 1979 and 1988, the Congressional Budget Office indicates that there was a rise in the top 1% share of more than 4%. Okay. Piketty and Sias, it's a rise of about a little bit more than five percentage points. Okay. And, but the out and splinter data indicate that that rise between 1979 and 1988 was only 1.7 points. To put it all together, if, if you accept what Outen and Splinter have done, and I think it's basically on the right track, basically on the right track, if you look at the Outen and Splinter numbers from 1979 to 2014, the income share after tax of the top 1% has risen by 1.7 points from 8.4% to 10.1%. That's a rise, but it's not an earth-shattering kind of rise like you would get from uh, Piketty and Sias from, uh, you know, just naively looking at their, their numbers and accepting it as gospel truth, where during the same period, the income share of the, the top 1% goes from 9% to 20.3%. Okay, that's an 11.3% rise. These guys are saying, you know, 1.7 point rise. Okay, I've got another question for you, Andrew. I don't know if you'll have the answer for this one. It's related. As the average amount of hours the people have worked, have they increased? I, I don't think so. When, when, I, when I look at, 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 at wages and stuff, I always make sure I'm looking at hourly or, you know, uh, putting the, 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 the wages and benefits on an hourly basis. So it, it's possible, but from what I know, we can't explain the fact that the labor share was constant or not, at least not trending upward or downward. The share of the product that workers received from 1970 to the onset of the Great Recession very little, if any, of that, and I don't think any of that can be explained by 
people working more. Let me kind of create a grand narrative to try and explain what has happened. So what we're saying is that the long-term rate of profit was exerting pressure on the rate of profitability in the system. And the rate of profitability is intrinsically linked to the amount of money which goes to the capitalist class. And what we have seen is, I say, an attack on working conditions and unions and stuff like that to maintain the capitalist share of production. But it hasn't grasped a whole of a lot more of production. It's just that to maintain that capitalist share, they had to destroy labor unions and stuff like that to maintain it. And this is what is shown in the statistics by the labor share has not shifted sizably. It's much of a muchness. Is is that a fair analysis of what you're trying to say overall? It's consistent with the data that I've been discussing with you. It, it, it's not the way I, I think things actually took place because of other data. What one has to understand, I think, fundamentally about the United States is already at the beginning of this period, there were not many wor- workers in unions, relatively speaking. And throughout time, that share has gone down even more. And we have a phenomenon known as segmented labor markets, whereby people in different segments of the labor market, so to speak, are actually not in competition with each other. You know, they're like crap jobs and the crap job workers compete for crap jobs and they don't, you know, compete in the market for computer programmers and finance and, and, and so forth and so on. So we've got this, this segmentation. Because of the segmentation and because of the in the labor market and because of uh, the low rate of unionization to begin with, the so-called attacks on the working class, they actually, I believe, just did not have a tremendous effect on most workers. Okay, you, you, you eliminate seniority provisions. You, you have manufacturing plants that close up, go to the southwest or go overseas. That's going to affect a portion of the working class. It's going to hit them very hard, and it did. But that's not the whole of the working class. And there are countervailing issues. For instance, there has been, if you want to, if you want to look at why the wages and benefits of the working class have, have, have increased, it's mostly not a matter of men getting increases. But the, the, there's very little in terms of wage and, and, and benefit growth among men. Among women, it's been huge. Okay, that cannot be explained in terms of a struggle between unions and, and, and the government or employers and, and, and all of those kinds of battles. It, it's, it's, it's very distinct from that. So one thing that has kept worker share of income is huge gains uh, by women, which have a lot to do, I think, with, you know, the rise of the women's liberation movement and, and, and feminism more broadly. So there's been uh, a lot of shifts within the working class. So I wouldn't say that the capitalists were struggling to keep up their share uh, I, I think that whole kind of story based on some kind of undifferentiated capitalist class and undifferentiated working class just does not help make sense of what's going on because of what I've been talking about with, you know, workers in basic manufacturing in the north with seniority contracts. They're there 
or they were there, but they were always a very small minority of the working class. And men, as distinct from women, there's all this differentiation. So uh, it's hard for me, I don't even try to, to boil it down into one simple narrative. But I, I don't think that I have or anybody has a narrative like that that actually does account appropriately for the data. I think there were a lot of things going on. But I'm able to, I think, explain why, despite things like Reagan's smashing of the PATCO, uh, Air Traffic Controllers Union, and the capital flight, and the give-back contracts, it, it, it's clear to me that, that those things are consistent with, with the numbers because of a small share of workers being unionized, and those that were were not mostly in those industries to begin with. So I'm sorry I don't have a narrative for you or, or anybody else. It's really hard, you know, to explain. Okay, I'm going to explain to you why nothing has happened. You know, it's really hard to explain explain a series that does not display any trend. But I don't think the explanation is that the capitalists were, were under assault and they were fighting very, very hard to, to stay in, you know, stay in place. I, I don't think that that's, the, that that's the case. I think that there were major changes and they had an effect. But other things were happening at the same time, and the changes that had an effect did not have an effect over the whole working class. So essentially what we've come to over, like that long detailed discussion on inequality statistics, is that this idea that is absolutely hegemonic in the left, in, in, in the American left, has been a vast increase in equality in America, that it's a return to the Gilded Age and all this stuff, that that is a misreading of facts and it does not explain our political situation. Can we get then towards the Trump election and what you think is at play and what does the evidence that you have been looking at say was the reason for the election of Trump? Right. Well, of course, there were a lot of reasons for the election of Trump. Let's focus on why votes shifted you know, from the Democrats to Trump. Uh, that's something that can be, you know, it's narrower, it's, it's easier to explain. There have been a lot of studies done, I think nine studies that I know of right now, and they try to get at why there was a shift to Trump from, let's say, people who had voted for Obama, or they try to look at what are the factors that, so to speak, predict support for Trump. When people are supporting Trump, what are they supporting? Now. The one piece of evidence that seems to, on the surface, go along with the anti-neoliberal left account is that there was a very large rise in support for Trump among people in the U.S. who don't have four-year college degrees or, or more, you know, master's, professional, PhD. Very large rise. And... In the political science and sociology literature, those people who lack four-year college degrees are often called the working class. Uh, that doesn't match up with how economists, who not all of whom even think in terms of the working class, think of it, though. They'll think in terms of income or, you know, uh, Marxists will, will look at, you know, people's uh, relationship to the, the means of production. Okay, not education level. But the education level thing is real. 
Okay. So what we have, though, is not, quote, the working class going for Trump. We have people with less formal education going to Trump. Now, the question is why that is. So a lot of people have done studies, and most of these studies use regression analysis, which is a way of holding the various explanatory factors, the various variables constant. So you're able to look at all the variables, but one at a time, isolate one while holding those constant and measure the impact that each variable had, either on the degree of support for Trump or on switching one's vote to Trump or whatever. And consistently throughout all of these studies uh, that I've looked at, I think, that, as I said, there are nine to date. There is literally no evidence that economic distress experienced by the individual, fallen income, low income, uh, loss of jobs, being in a, a region where manufacturing is uh, subject to globalization, various studies do various things, but these are among the, the, the economic factors looked at. No economic factor that people have experienced individually seems to have any explanatory power to explain Trump support or a shift in vote to Trump. Okay, it is there among these people who are less educated, okay, but it's not explained by economic factors. What is it explained by? The various studies don't come to what I would regard as a single unified conclusion, but there's a lot of anti immigrant sentiment. There is a lot of sexism. There is a lot of racism that are, and that these do predict or do explain the shift to Trump and the degree of Trump support. And in addition to that, uh, authoritarianism, authoritarian attitudes. So I would say it's some combination of racism and xenophobia, misogyny, authoritarianism that were responsible for for the shift to Trump. And, you know, I've been looking at at, at, at these these election surveys, the very detailed studies of, you know, they get reports from individuals. And probably the best known is the American National Election Study, NES. So I was able to isolate the people who said they voted for Obama and then who said they voted for Trump. And you know, most of most of the, the questions are people get choices. You know, you pick this one, you pick that one. But some of them allowed some of the questions allow people to volunteer responses. And one of the set of those those questions that people could volunteer responses for was what do you like about the, the Republican candidate? What do you what do you like about Trump? And there was like 147 people in the survey in the study who said they voted for Obama and then switched to Trump. Some of them didn't answer that, that question, okay? But there's 113 who did. And economic factors hardly ever appeared on that, that, that list of what people said in response to what they like about Trump. There were about seven economic questions, uh, seven economic responses in general. You know, they would just say the economy, you know? The only thing that was sort of related to jobs, okay, because the anti-neoliberal left says, ah, he said he would provide jobs. One person said jobs. One person said immigration slash jobs. Okay. Those were the only two out of the 113 that mentioned jobs at all. And the other economic kind of answers were kind of very vague and, and 
not not specific, and you could certainly could say this was any yearning for social democracy, <laughs> not in the least. But even you know, even then, you're only talking about I don't remember seven, eight, nine responses out of about 113. As against a lot of responses where people are mentioning immigration, you know, you're not going to get people, you know, for the most part saying, uh, I want to keep all the Muslims out and I want to keep all the brown people out, you know, or he's, you know, going to stick it to the blacks. You're not going to get people to say that. So in terms of actual issues, the ones that one that really stands out is immigration and then you get a lot of folks who said they voted for Obama and then voted for Trump who mentioned personal qualities, like the guy's tough, he's a businessman, he's going to stick it to the, 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 the traditional politicians and, and stuff like that. Both the actual studies that have been done that try to isolate the various reasons why people voted for Trump and the self-reporting of what people say as to why they switched, both of those tell us that this was not a revolt against economic distress caused by neoliberalism. What, what are we saying then? These people are voting for strongman, immigration, personality, drain the swamp issues. Yeah, I, some combination of that. Racism, sexism, xenophobia, authoritarianism. It's very interesting. The, the questions that they use to get out of authoritarian attitudes are based in how people respond to questions about child rearing. Okay, but there are other things, and you I, you know you just see a real looking at the data. You see a real distinction between Trump voters and other voters. You know the the people who switch or say they switch from Obama to Trump go right along with the Trump voters in terms of. You know, we, we need a strong leader in this country, even that person bends the rules. The Trump voters, including those who switched from Obama to Trump or say they did, they're much more likely to agree, much more. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they're much more likely to agree that we need to have a strong leader, even if somebody who bends the rules. And when I look at the responses as to what they like about Trump, you get so many of them saying he's a businessman, he's tough, this and that. The other thing, he'll run the country like a business this has been a trope that I've heard my whole life. And to me, this is a marked sign of authoritarianism. Okay, I don't know that the social scientists would allow that to be a question about authoritarianism, but just think of it. You know, what's the most authoritarian institution in, in society <laughs> apart from the military? You know, it's people's workplaces. You can be hired and fired basically at will. You know, you got to do what you're told. There's, you know, people at the top and they're in complete control. So if people are saying that's how they want a country run, to me, that that's a real strong indication of authoritarianism. Do you think that people aren't are so uh, subsumed by the capitalist production system that they can't even see that top down authoritarian structure? Well, like when I first had it pointed out to me, I, I was quite shocked. <laughs> The authoritarian structure of the workplace. Yeah, it's something that's so lived. It's like breathing air. Right. Well, you know, you, you don't you don't see anybody talking about this. It's it's not in the the news. I mean, the news is always about something happening. There's no news headline like uh, the structure of labor management relations continues to be authoritarian. 
just like it was last year and the year before and 100 years ago and 200 years ago. It, that, that's not news, right? Dog bites man is not news. We live it and we're used to it. I, I don't think people have any trouble recognizing it or feeling, you know, screwed over by it. But it, it's not there in the news and it's not there in, in politics. I mean, even on the left, you get all of this continual stuff about inequality, 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 rising inequality, uh, the stagnation of wages. Most of that's, you know, mythical. But where do these people ever talk about, you know, on the anti-neoliberal left, where do they ever talk about the authoritarian character of the place where people spend most of their lives apart from bed? Yeah, it's never talked about. Right. The standard centrist left figures never, ever talk about that. But it's only radicals that talk about that. And only some people who consider themselves radical talk about that. Like the weird thing is, like, I know you're right. It's so easy to see when your eyes are open that's authoritarian. But I am sure in the past I have made <laughs> similar type arguments and probably some of those you know, in my naive past about a businessman might do a better job than a politician or something. I don't doubt I have said that when I was younger. Uh, yeah, people say it. I, I think we're getting a real test case with Trump. And I think what is being shown is that he is, in a sense, very good at doing the aspects of his job that are like those of a corporation, like issuing executive orders and getting rid of people and putting in new people. But when it comes to dealing with other forces that have some power on an ongoing basis, where you're not just cutting a one-off deal, he's totally at sea. Okay. And this, this I think has actually a lot to do. If you want to understand the mind of Trump, some of his authoritarian statements and reactions since he's become president are due to the fact that he's having such trouble dealing with, you know, Congress, dealing with others on an equal basis. He's, he's so used to his whole life actually has been, I'm the boss and what I say goes. And th that's how he's instinctively prepared and equipped to, to deal with running anything. You seem to be very worried about what Trump represents a slide into some kind of proto-fascism in the United States. What specifically makes you so worried about Trump? Well, you can look at everything he's done. Uh, it, it, it's horrible. And also he has a lot of popular support, not majority support, but he's got a lot of support. So there is some sort of base. I don't think it's economic base, but he, ha but he ha has a strong base. There's always been in the United States, you know, this racism, this sexism, this authoritarianism. But with the campaign and now the election of Trump, it's been weaponized politically. What we had for the longest time was the Republican Party, where this is all centered, was dominated by mainstream politicians who were economic conservatives or, you know, neocons, neoconservatives, they were warmonger types or whatever it might be. And they would throw sexist and racist dog whistles out there to try to win over the base. And that succeeded. For the first time with Trump, those folks lost control over the party and it became a Trump white party. 
the base is getting what it wants. I mean, you just have to look at the family deportations, the ripping kids away from their mothers and fathers. And now the fact that they can't even find them, they don't care about the, they, they're supposed to reunite the families. They're, they're not doing that. Just look at what's going on in Puerto Rico. That is genocide. It's not Auschwitz, but it's intentional. People are dying. It's systematic. And they're dying of, of, of government neglect. And these are citizens of the United States. It's no accident that these people are Latino. And they're being treated how they are because they're Latino. Because you can look at what happened with the hurricanes at the same time in, in Florida and Texas. They, they haven't suffered anywhere near that kind of devastation. Okay. The Supreme Court just uh, approved the third version of Trump's Muslim ban. We're probably going to get a Supreme Court justice, and they're going to take away women's uh, abortion rights, and it could get a whole lot worse. You know, you 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 listen to Trump, and he's full of praise for Putin, and he's full of praise for Kim Jong Un, and you know the, the head of China, all these authoritarians. He has absolute disdain for liberal democracy. You know, he said, gee, why, you know, why, why the, the head of China is president for life? Gee, that's a great idea. I, I think that he is going to do what he can. I don't know how much he can do to stay there, you know, forever. And uh, what worries me is that I think that there is not a strong attachment, not a strong enough attachment to liberal democracy in the United States. I think a section of the very well to do have decided that, you know, they've had enough that the demographic changes in the, U in the U.S., you know, were becoming less white, more black, more Latino, somewhat more Asian. Those demographic changes are working against their interests. And if we remain in a real democracy where you've got not only elections, but, you know, no voter suppression, et cetera, et cetera, that they're going to have a tough time. So I think that they've decided enough is enough and we're going to maintain our rule you know our supremacy by non-democratic means and you marry that together with the authoritarian and racist and, and sexist and xenophobic sentiments that are there throughout a lot of the population it's a very very dangerous combination so it's partly a matter of trump but it's partly a matter of this base and of the you know, very well-to-do, the section of the very well-to-do who basically given up on democracy. And when I say that they've given up on democracy or liberal democracy, it's not only myself that's saying that uh, I'm taking some of this from David Frum, who's a very conservative, but never Trump political pundit, originally from Canada. I think he used to work at the Heritage Foundation or something, and they, they fired him because he was anti-Trump or something. But I think that, that, that when he says this, he knows more than, than he's saying. There's, there's some background here. You know, he doesn't give, he doesn't name names. But I, I think he, know, he, he knows something, personally knows, that, that I don't know about this. But even not knowing, you know, personally about this, the, the, sign, the signs are there. Okay, so I have a question for you, Andrew. What makes Trump different, say, like in Europe, we've had an experience of lots of these typed Trump guys you know, from Berlusconi to the, is it Viktor Orban in Hungary? Like, what makes Trump an extra special threat than just one of these right-wing populist 
types that have sprung up in Europe before. Right. Well, when, when I said that, that, that Trump is, a, you know, an extraordinary danger or whatever, I'm comparing him to people like, you know, Mitt Romney and George W. Bush and Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and, and so forth. Uh, that was not meant to be, you know, who's on the top of the, the proto-fascist list. But clearly what makes him much more dangerous than those folks is he's president of the United States which has got enough nuclear arms to kill the entire world s several times over. Let's look at it from a non-European point of view. From, say, you're uh, somebody from the Middle East. Do you think they see much difference between George W. Bush and Donald Trump? I mean, I don't know about the Mideast per se, but I know that there are very negative feelings about Trump in other countries in general. And that foreigners' perceptions of the United States have deteriorated a lot under Trump. Okay, I think the exceptions are like Russia and Israel. I, I don't know about you know specifically about about the Middle East. I'm just reporting to you like what I've read on on websites, kind of like what comes on in the news. What I suppose what I'm trying to get at is there like an essentialism about bad things being done in America have more impact on Americans say like than a million people George Bush killed like how do we sit down you know and uh, look at the numbers and figure out who was a greater evil George Bush or Donald Trump you know is there essentialism about looking at say things that happen in America to Americans that you know people aren't paying the same attention to American foreign policy and the effects that other even democratic guys in the past have done you know whether it was the vietnam war like how do we how do, how do we look at this from a numbers point to think about their effect in the entire world i i can't even answer this i can't even answer this because if trump were you know helping to free the rest of the world then you could say okay on the one hand there's this and on the other hand there's that but he's not doing that you know, every indication is he's going to hand over Syria to Assad and and and, and Putin and, and and Yemen. And you know, you can see what he's done to give monsters who run North Korea at least a, a publicity victory. Okay, so he's he's absolutely horrible there. He's he's engaged in warmongering. If you talk about foreign relations, you have to talk about his absolutely fascistic immigration policy and his attempt to close the borders, you know, to Muslims, that's all part of foreign policy as well. So what we're dealing with is in the main, in foreign policy, we've always had America first. We still got America first. That hasn't changed. And then you look at what he's done to the people of the United States and what he is likely to do unless he's stopped. And it's absolutely horrific. And basically, I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of dismissive of the whole line from the Putinites. And it really is something being pushed by the Putin regime and RT and I suppose Sputnik that the interests of, of Russia in the, in the global geopolitical realm are the interests of humanity. I, I just don't buy that in the least. The, the, the interests of the Russian government, in my view, are not the interests of humanity. One of the things is that people might give Trump credit for not starting a war yet, but it's not like Americans start major wars every two or three years. 
if he had his chance, he would probably start an Iraq war in the morning. So we can't give him too much credit for that. It's not like a big war like that starts every year. It's every 25 years or something. I, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know exactly, but I mean, uh, I, I just read this morning, I just saw the headline, actually, I didn't read, that, that he wanted to invade Venezuela. This is this is not a, a man of peace. I don't want to give that impression. Like, I thought the, the separating the mothers from their kids just, I found that so offensive. I don't know if you're watching that program, um, The Handmaid's Tale, or if you've heard of it. I heard a little bit about it, yeah. Yeah, and it's it really chimes with some of the stuff that's going on at the moment. You know, people getting their babies taken away, and you know, I I think a lot of people felt very disgusted and internationally about that. And it's of a piece with all of the other horrific th- horrific things he's done, you know, regarding people from other countries, regarding racial issues, and it's of a piece with everything he said he was going to do to immigrant, you know, to to bash immigrants. That's the That was the key to his campaign from the very moment he came down the escalator in Trump Tower and said, you know, they're rapists, they're murderers. All of this should have been expected because he says, you know, this is what I'm going to do. And he's been trying to do it. Uh, And for me as a Jew and and as as somebody who who, who has had, you know, who had family members perish in in the Holocaust. I mean, this is absolutely heartbreaking. What was most heartbreaking to me was to hear that the border police as a way to take the kids away from their mothers they say oh we're taking the kid to the shower and then you know the mother would never see the kid again this is this is what the the, the thugs in the, in the in the in the death camps told jews you know we're just going to take you to the shower there is a, a thing on the us left i think you know the people were so disgusted with say what happened to bernie and stuff like that that there is a lot of the U.S. left, I think, look at the resistance that the name was given to people uh, standing up to Trump and his policies. There's a tendency like that. It's nearly like a hipster leftist tendency to kind of essentially make fun of the resistance because of some of the people that they don't like that are in it. What, what do you make of that approach of many leftists, I think, on the left? Well... I think it's rather crazy on its face. Uh, first of all, you know, the Women's March, the day after Trump was inaugurated, had maybe 4 million people, the various cities' women's marches, 4 million people. Maybe you add in other countries, 100,000 in London and so forth, you're up to 5 million people. These are not all Democratic Party, you know, leaders. A survey came out recently about uh, activism in the U.S. during the past couple of years. And on the basis of that, I estimated that we got a resistance of about 30 million people in this country, an active resistance. This is people who are very strongly disapproved Trump and have engaged in some kind of action, at least one, such as, you know, attending a protest, you know, going into town halls of their Congress people and fighting to keep the Affordable Care Act, you know, Obamacare, or, you know, protests at the airport over the Muslim ban, any, any kind of active uh, engagement like that. It's about 30 million people. That's, that's just the U.S. This is not an elite phenomenon, okay? You can't describe the resistance and and say it's just a project of the Democratic Party. There are resistance groups in every congressional district in this country. And a good deal of the resistance has 
placed itself to the left of the Democratic Party leadership over the issue of uh, DACA, the Dreamers, the, the the kids who were brought here, you know, undocumented, and Obama gave them a reprieve, said you could stay, and and Trump, you know, has reversed that, although it's still being fought out. You know, at one point it, it seemed that the Democratic Party was going to take a stand and block the passing of a new federal government budget unless this DACA program that allows these folks to stay unless it was extended, and they caved on that. You know, Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic uh, House leader, there's a demonstration at her press conference by these DACA kids. This was last year, late last year, and they said, you know, the Democrats are not the resistance, we are. You know, and more recently over this DACA battle, you've got a lot of people really being very harshly critical or condemning the Democratic Party, including people who are like leaders of Indivisible, which is the main uh, umbrella group uh, of resistance organizations. So what I think is actually going on is that a lot of these leftists are less than taken with the resistance, first of all, because they're unwilling to say that they were wrong. And they made a huge mistake and they've imperiled and endangered the people of their country. Secondly, it's this left first politics. They put the interests of, you know, their organizations or the left ahead of everything. And they say, ah, you know, what's actually good for us is to have uh, a lot of chaos, kind of accelerationist view, you know, so Trump might win these folks over. We might win them over, you know, but we can appeal to the same base as he does, and chaos is good for our particular interests. But th this idea that the resistance is, is, you know, just a bunch of well-to-do professionals who are happy that Hillary Clinton won the election, that, that's just complete nonsense. One thing that I heard Zizek say before, and I'm not a fan of Slavoj Zizek, but one thing I he said before that's always stuck with me, and this was, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years ago, I think, where he said that he thought that Berlusconi was the model for future leaders under capitalism. That was the tendency. Do you think that he was right? Is Trump, you know, one of these Berlusconi types? And is it something that we're stuck with now the genie is out of the bottle? Oh, I don't think we're stuck at all. I think that there is right now a tremendous, in the United States in particular, but the resistance is getting a good deal of solidarity in the UK because, you know, orange slime is about to visit and, and they're opposing it. There's a there's a, a democratic revival, people who want liberal democracy, people who want abortion rights. There were, I don't know, over 100,000 people, white people who came out last Saturday against the family separation and, and, and all of this stuff. We're seeing a revival of that kind of sentiment, tremendous amount of activism, the likes of which I've never seen. So it's, it, things are not yet lost. We are in very dire times, I believe, but things are not yet lost. You know, could Berlusconi in, in a more threatening form like Trump be the face of our future? You know, yeah, we've got Orban, we've got uh, Putin, right? Uh, we've got Trump now. Yeah. It could happen, okay? It, it can happen because I think, you know, David Frum got it basically right. When 
a, a section of the very wealthy gives up on liberal democracy and, you know, throws its uh, support behind this kind of stuff and says, we're going to keep our, our wealth and we we're going to keep our power by non-democratic means. Yeah, we're, we're in a very, very dangerous situation. But I, I don't think that things are lost. You know, one social revolution in one country, a big one like the United States, could really turn everything around. And, you know, I think that's the key to, to world revolution, in fact. Not to say that we're, we're lost, but to say that it's the genie is out of the bottle on for candidates of the right. Oh, the genie is definitely the genie is definitely out of the bottle, especially in the United States. What happens is, you know, since the election of Ronald Reagan, people thought that there was a mass base for economic conservatism or the kind of Reagan conservatism, which was, you know, some melding of social conservatism, religious conservatism, neocon, you know, uh, hawkish foreign policy, and above all, economic conservatism. And what the can showed was that's absolutely not the case. What people were responding to was not, you know, free market policies, nor were they responding because they're, you know, global interventionists. The, the people who were responding to that stuff in, you know, elections and stuff, it, it, it was the racist dog whistles. It was the sexist dog whistles. With the with the candidacy of Trump, you didn't have any of that other baggage. The economic conservatism, you know, you didn't have the the the, the neocon stuff. What what you had was really heightened and unabashed racism, xenophobia, misogyny, and and that caught on among a large section of the population. A lot of people, a lot, a lot of people have been totally repulsed by this and continue to be repulsed daily. But but those are those are the tendencies in, in, in the United States. So yes, the genie is definitely out of the bottle. Do you think he'll get reelected? I am hoping that he doesn't get that far. Meaning? I am hoping he does not last until 2020. Yeah, but like, oh, <laughs> he gets shot. There, there is the Mueller investigation, and it looks like Michael Cohen is about to flip. And there are over a million pages of documentation that have been handed over from the special master to the uh, investigation. There's a lot of evidence of uh, conspiracy between the Putin government and the Trump campaign. You know, you've got uh, Mueller, you've got Flynn, you've got Gates, you've got all these other people. The real question is not that. The real question is what will the Republicans in Congress, in particular, in this case, the Senate, do? Will they bring forward articles of impeachment and will they vote to remove the president? The evidence is, is just it's there. That, that's not even the problem. And, and Mueller, I'm sure, you know, knows 10 times at least what I know, if not 100 times what I know. We, we have not heard the last of Robert Mueller. So I think the outcome of the 2018 election you know, the, the, the midterm election coming up in, in November will be important because if the Republicans are absolutely trounced, you might begin to see some of Congress say, some of the Republicans in Congress say, this, this is not our future to stick with this guy. If they decide to throw him to the dogs or enough of them decide that he should be thrown to the dogs, then the evidence is, is, is there to get rid of him you know, articles of impeachment and all kinds of other stuff as well. 
On this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters by Sun Ra and his orchestra, and you're now listening to Anton Karas with the theme tune from The Third Man. Thanks for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. And don't forget, smash that subscribe and thumbs up button.